Hey, Meredith. Hey. Be my victim. Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Gritty Reboot Podcast. I'm Pedro. And I'm Meredith. So today we are lucky enough to be talking about another one of our favorite movies here, A Pair of Candyman. Yeah, you like it a little bit more than I do, especially the first movie. Yeah, I've always been enamored with the original film, um, even when I I saw it when I was a kid. You ever heard of Candyman? If you look in the mirror and you say his name five times. In cities everywhere. Candyman. They whisper his name. Right. Candyman. It's just a story. Candyman. Candyman. Um. Obviously, I'm a little bit too, uh, a little bit too young to really have like a real like video nasty kind of story. But um, in the early '90s, this was one of those movies that people considered like too scary to really show kids and things like that. So. My this is one of the few films my my mom was a little bit cautious about letting me see. So I had to wait until it hit television for me to actually catch it for the first time. And I guess the first time I did, I I was just captured by uh, Candyman and uh, Tony Todd's uh, great performance. Yeah, I Um, think if anything, the movie's too heady. Yes, yes. I I look back on it and and realize as a kid, I just enjoyed it as as a ghost movie. And then um, I I don't think I, I, you know, you know. I, you know, sort of ghost slasher flick, pardon me. And I don't think it was till college that I, I got a chance to watch it again. And then I was like, oh, wait a minute, dude. This movie's about something. Yeah. As I'm sure, you know, a, a lot of people who, you know, when you watch, rewatch some movies from your youth again as a teenager or as an adult or, you know, even in your 30s, um, you will g- gain a new appreciation or, or sometimes the exact opposite for what the film isn't trying to say. And And, and I was sort of blown away watching the movie again um you know when i got to college because i was like oh th- this is this is a really uh smart movie yes and it's aware of how smart it is which i i, I it's a I, horror movie with a message yeah it, it very much is there's something this movie uh wants to say uh Candyman came out in 92 and it was directed by uh bernard rose um the one thing i want to mention about bernard is uh this movie is produced by uh clive barker and uh, if anybody out there is unfamiliar with Clive Barker, once again, I don't know how you found this show. But uh, <laughs> Clive Barker made Hellraiser. He's a renowned uh, author. Um, his, his movies, he didn't make a lot of movies, but his movies are generally classics and, and held up in pretty high regard. So with that being said, Candyman is an adaptation of one of his tales. And it, he sets it in uh, in London where Clive Barker sets most of his stories. So Everything that you pretty much see on screen is changed and added uh, by uh, Bernard Rose, and, and that includes uh, Chicago um, and setting in the projects. Yeah, uh, all that was added by him, and, and uh, it's a great change because I think Clyde Barker set out to make something about a folk a folk story about where he was from, an urban legend about where he grew up, and he was able to do that with Chicago and give it a, an American um, urban legend that I, I the really has some amazing legs in all honesty. Chicago, a very gritty city. But in this movie, uh we see uh the the poorest parts the of Chicago. Projects. Yeah, we see the projects. And they actually did shoot there, by the way. Um most people <laughs> most Hollywood productions would use a set. Yeah. And I think that leads to some of the most striking imagery when they when uh Virginia Madsen, uh Helen first arrives there with her friend and they start taking pictures and walking around the place. 
um, something dawned on me as I was rewatching here a couple days ago with you is we talk about horror all the time and like what's scary, what's not scary. And I don't think there's anything more terrifying for a white person to walk into the most violent project in their own city. As a white person, I can contest to that. Yeah, that would be the most terrifying thing that really could occur. And she does that. And I mean, now, granted, her character almost kind of puts it on like a badge of honor. Like, I'm I'm not scared. I'm not Yeah, afraid. she really does. Yeah, I mean, Helen's a ballsy character. She really is. She she's has a pretty character. Yeah, she has something she wants to prove. And, and she's going to do whatever it takes to prove it. And it, it, it certainly does make her interesting, uh, to, to say the least. She she really is one of the finer horror protagonists, if you really want to get down to it, uh, from everything she has to go through. She's really smart. Yeah, she's incredibly intelligent capable. and ambitious. Yeah. it's um, And we're very lucky to have someone of Virginia Madsen's caliber playing that part. She would later go on to get an Oscar nomination uh, for Sideways with uh, Paul Giamatti, I think, uh, somewhere in the mid-2000s. But uh, she she's great here. She wasn't really she wasn't originally supposed to get the part. She only ended up doing it, I think because the director's wife uh, got pregnant, and so she had to slide in there at the last second. And she does an amazing job doing that. But those whole sequences of her walking around uh, the the projects are, are really fantastic. What's the name of the building again? Cabrini Green. Cabrini Green. Thank you. It just slipped my mind. Cabrini Green. All those moments of her walking around, there's such authenticity to this. It, yes. It le- you, I mean, we talk about gritty. That's as gritty as it gets. The atmosphere is very gritty in this movie. Yeah, we talk about this a lot. And not to talk, talk about Star Wars too early, but I mentioned this a lot with the original films of the prequels. Like, everything is very sanitized in the prequels because of the CG and things like that. And, and, and the original films had that feel to them that the Star Wars universe was really, really lived in. Yeah. And uh, this movie really has that effect. I mean, like, they are in the projects. They're in Cabrini Green. And and you can feel it. There's great history to the building of Cabrini Green in itself. Yeah, along with the score. The score is very gritty as well. Uh, yeah, and I, I think that the score is interesting. Uh, the score is done by legendary composer uh, Philip Glass. Uh, he was asked to do the project by uh, the director. And he was a fan of Clive Barker's original story. And he was told about what the movie was going to be. But he considers himself to be manipulated and shafted by the final project um, as a bit more of a <laughs> as a slasher movie. And I, I feel, well, I can tell you one thing. Philip Glass wasn't watching a lot of slasher movies at the time <laughs> because this is a much smarter film than than almost any slasher movie that I've, I've ever seen. And to call it a slasher movie is a disservice. You know, th- this is a paranormal thriller. Yeah. If you really want to get technical, like, is there slasher elements to it? Y- yes, but that's not really what the movie is. There's also a sexy undertone to it. Yes. And that's another thing I wanted to point out. I, as I looked into the production, I discovered that... Um, you know, that chemistry between uh, Tony Todd and Virginia Madsen yeah. that they have. They took some ballroom dancing classes at the time huh. to kind of get a feel on how to move together. And it really shows in, in how they interact. There is this longing between them. There is. Yeah, and, and it adds something to it. This is very much a, a, a different movie. I, listen, I'm not going to criticize <laughs> Philip Glass's taste <laughs> in films, um, but he, he probably shouldn't watch Friday the 13th Part 4 is what I'm saying. He yeah. wouldn't enjoy that. This movie raises itself up among that fair and it got good reviews at the time um it currently since sits at around 78 percent of rotten tomatoes and you know the movie spawned a small franchise uh we had two movies uh farewell to the flesh uh, a fairly standard hollywood um slasher flick with candy man and nothing right home about and a particularly bad third film that even tony todd 
uh, hates and despises actually uh, had issues with the director on that movie. Um, but Tony Todd loves his character and loves that film, loves this movie. Yes. And for good reason, he's fantastic in this film. Yeah. He really in just envelops the character. The second he steps on screen, the entire movie changes. Cause I mean, let, let's talk about it. You have this film where for about 40 minutes, we are in a thriller about a woman who has a drive to, to make her point about these urban legends. Yeah. That's what the movie's about. And this quest leads her deeper and darker into the real life violence of yeah. Cabrini Green. That's what the movie's about. There's no supernatural element. There's nothing to that movie until 40 minutes and until, bam, Tony Todd shows up just in the background. And I love that she doesn't run. She doesn't scream. She is hypnotized, drawn to him instantly. Yeah, she really is. Yeah. She has, she cannot stop herself from staring right into his eyes. You know, it's, it's at those moments you realize you're, you're certainly in for a different film. And from that moment, like, I, I, the movie is slow, even though there is some great tension. Like, honestly, the scene where the uh, the criminal walks in with the hook, like, that's a tense scene, you know. And probably, you know, you move with all this gore and, and, and blood and guts, probably, uh, the, the probably the nastiest thing in the movie is the shit on the walls writing out sweet. Oh, to the I know that scene is so disgusting. Yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden you have this sequence where she's surrounded. And I mean, like, that's the nightmare, like surrounded by these dangerous criminals. Yeah. You know, in a situation you realize, oh, no, I can't talk my way out of this. They these guys don't care about what the rules are or anything like that. And you get your faux candy man. Yeah. Because he shows up with a hook. Exactly. We have a, another figure there who stands in for the Candyman. And and I, I love the moment right before all this goes down. Is she tells that boy, that was the Candyman. He did it all. And she's like, there is no Candyman. He's not real. Yeah. And that's why he appeared to her. Because it was her job to build the legend and she was trying to take it down. And, and then that's how she became the new victim of the Candyman. And I like I, I love that is like the Candyman is all about PR at the end of the day. He's all about trying to push the narrative and the story about himself out there in the world to rise his power. Yes. And I I, I love that element of of this movie and, and and the good sequels. Let's just cut out Farewell of the Flesh and Day of the Dead. Those don't really matter. You know, the, there's really only the two movies to talk about in that respect. And this movie does a nice job showing how much he values his legend. Absolutely. And it's his legend is told a lot in the movies. You know, you have to say his name five times in a mirror. Yeah, we, we get a very clear scene of the lore. The directions, if you will. Yeah, yeah. We have an opening sequence uh, featuring uh, the great Ted Raimi um, <laughs> early on. And, and we are told the rules of the Candyman, which are you look into a mirror and you say his name five times and he appears to you. Um, and, and this is something that I think is such an authenticity to an urban legend, right? Because yeah. most urban legends have a weird, like, oogie-boogie, like, element to them. Like yeah. like the girl by the side of the road. You know, like, if you see, like, a girl by the side of the road, you should pull over and help her. Or, or you know, she might make your car crash or something yeah. like that. You know, there's all the weeping woman. Like, you know, there's all... And all those legends come from tragedy. And yes. we can say that Candyman also comes from tragedy. Exactly, exactly. Those things feed into one another. Um, you know, he, he ends up getting a, a much nicer backstory, uh, told in that dinner sequence, yes. uh, which, which I think is fantastic. The only worthwhile segment of any of the sequels is they do about a 20 minute version of that flashback where they shoot it. And it's really well done. Um, but yeah, him getting the story of falling in love with the white girl and, and then basically being, you know, 
uh, tortured and, and killed uh, in public for doing such a yeah, thing. Yeah, he gets his hand cut off. Uh, they take, they basically destroy all the nearby hives and they take the, uh, the honeycomb. The honeycombs from the the beehives, and they rub it on him, and he basically gets stung to death. And so that's why there's a huge element of bees. And bees are creepy. Bees are scary. Bees. We don't want to get stung by bees. It hurts. Yeah. N- n- yeah. That's that's how people feel about about bees. Yeah. Um, bees are the gritty or another gritty aspect to this movie. Yeah. Unless you're going to cover the Candyman and spiders, there was no other way to really establish like a, an insect that makes people feel uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, because I, <laughs> you know, I've seen bodybuilders, you know, walk out of the gym and then a bee comes by like. Ugh. Yeah, you know, exactly. You just head the other way because that's what bees do to you. No, no one ever likes to get stung. So, and uh, by the way, um, a fun fact about the shooting of this movie: obviously, uh, Tony Todd is covered in bees a lot. If you were ever curious about that, they use uh, queen bee pheromones to coat like the surfaces of those actors in, so they don't get stung. Uh, however, Tony Todd had a rider in his contract uh, for a thousand dollars per bee sting. And he ended up walking away with twenty three thousand dollars. Oh wow! I had no idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like he has them in his mouth at one point. Like, oh. yeah, because it, it was in the script, and it was one of those things that the director put down. And was like, yeah, there's no way I'll get an actor to do that. And Tony Todd was like, let's get it done. Yeah, I mean, every, a, every he, time I see it, ugh. it's great. Yeah, because he's got a mouthpiece in, but they're still in his mouth. Yeah, <laughs> like there's no cheating where they're at. <laughs> uh, and it, I mean, it's such. And he leans down for that bee filled kiss. Like there's, and it's another moment of this haunting and disturbing relationship between these two. And and then once you have this meeting, like the movie kicks into high gear. Helen is immediately thrown into a fugue state and wakes up covered in blood and has to fight her way out of this whole situation. This living nightmare that gets worse and worse and worse in every I scene. I love it too because for me, I want her to be out of this. It's yeah. like a bad dream that exactly. I want her to wake up from. And I'm with her in that that feeling in the movie. And that's one of the parts I love the most is when she wakes up covered in blood and then she sees the the decapitated dog head and then she she hears the mother crying and she goes into the room and there's blood everywhere yeah. and the baby's missing yeah. it's, and she it's could, just couldn't look more guilty oh literally my the gosh. cops walk in and she's holding a butcher knife over his <laughs> head yeah exactly <laughs> yeah couldn't look more guilty and she's neck deep in this situation um also i have to mention um one other character that i i, I truly love in this film uh, Xander Berkeley plays her husband, and he is such a slimy oh douchebag. I mean, he can't help himself from lusting after his 19-year-old student in class. He's the worst. Um, and, and probably post-murder is the only time he acts like a regular person. Like, he is generally trying to comfort his wife. Because for two reasons. One, he feels bad about it. Also, he was out cheating that night because yeah. it was like 3 a.m. when she was calling. He wasn't home, and he feels bad about that. Um, he, he plays such a brilliant scene when um, her best friend is killed by the Candyman, and Helen is on the floor like he's it's him in like a fugue state, just muttering to herself, covered in blood. And he turns the corner. He cheated on his wife. Yeah, he wasn't a good husband. No, but he was also pretty aware. Like, listen, my wife didn't would never a baby ever do this or kill a dog. Something is off here. It's not till he walks in that he has that look on his face, like, oh my god, I was wrong. She had a psychotic break. She killed her best friend. Yeah. I held her out and she did this. You know, and and I, 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 the way he plays that is great. Like, he is, he's a douchebag and he earns his comeuppance by the end of the film. But th- there's little nuances in his performance that I think a, a, a lesser film couldn't handle. Yeah. 
And and this movie does with its great cast and uh, really fantastic screenplay, screenplay uh, certainly for the time. Yeah, and then we get, you know, the conclusion of the movie where she hears the baby crying. She goes back to Cambridge again. She hears the baby crying. Mm-hmm. They had There was that si- scene of the bonfire being built uh, early on in the movie. We come back to that. She hears the baby crying in the bonfire. She goes up the bonfire, and then she's crawling through all of this, this ch- old chairs and yeah. boards and stuff. Burning. Yeah, and then all the, all the residents of Cabrini Green start to come out, and they start to set the uh, bonfire on fire. Yeah, and so she's still trying to find this baby while smoke's coming and fires rising, and then she finds the baby, and you get this just rawness, like, oh my god, she's gonna burn up. Is is she gonna save this baby's life? Yes. And she crawls with the baby through the fire and she ends up giving the baby to the mother and she could see she's just totally burned up. Yeah. And I, I just love that. Yeah. I, I like that too, is that this, this ends with uh, it's a, a, it's a, a good ending, yeah, a complete redemption for Helen. She does. She defeats the candy man. Yeah. She saves the child and um, she's earned the respect of that community. And at the very end, um, she the mural is replaced. The Candyman mural is with her looking angelic as opposed to Candyman looking ominous as yeah. before. Um she still takes the time to get her comeuppance on her husband in a fun sequence. Uh as he comes back and and is gutted by her in her new burned head form. Yeah, she becomes the Candyman. Yeah, she yeah, she becomes that urban legend. Cuz he says her name 5 times in the mirror. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, she she becomes the urban legend after that. The story is about her now. And it's a nice way to talk about how urban legends continue to move and they grow and and, and they they <laughs> almost sort of gate sentience, I suppose, uh, as if we're the movies to be believed. Um, I, I don't love every frame of this movie, but it is certainly a movie that I have loved throughout the years. And I can't imagine that ever changing. Uh, watching it again uh, only made that stronger. I, yeah. I, I really love this movie. You know, to know it, it, it's about something. And, you know, I think for him to set it, it, it in the projects was a fantastic decision. And that decision um, is really what led to um, an incredible reboot. Well, soft, soft reboot and sequel um, later in uh, in 2021. Yes. Um, well, because I mean, if you want to get if you want to talk about it, you know, the world of slashers, um, he, he really would be the only uh, minority. So there 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 is something there for uh, a community to could attach. Yeah, I guess to. you're right. I didn't realize. Yeah, that. I mean, all, all the other slasher uh, slashers are, are, are white. Um, I'm trying to think right now. If there's somebody I'm forgetting. Um, but obviously, Michael Myers is white. We see his family, you know, Freddie, uh, Jason, we see his mom. Uh, I guess we never meet his dad, but, but but I mean, you know, it's safe to assume that, that you know, all all those are, are all those are white. Um, so then we come into um, I guess I should mention that as well. Bernard Rose is a white man. Clyde Barker, who wrote the original tale, is a white man, even though he he didn't set the Candyman as black. So um, it is nice to know that we got a film uh, by black filmmakers with a largely black cast in twenty twenty one. And uh, this movie talking it, it, about black culture. Yes, yes, and and I think um, the original Candyman was a movie about something, and this this twenty twenty one version certainly is as well. Candyman. The urban legend is if you say his name five times while looking in the mirror, he appears in the reflection and it kills you. 
Who would do that? Candyman. 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 Well, we're still alive. Uh, Jordan Peele uh, is one of the producers and one of the writers uh, on this movie. And it is, um, it's a real achievement in all honesty. Yeah. Yeah. It's a real achievement. I know you, you love this movie more than you like for the original film. So, so what do you have to say about it? Well, the original film was slow. You, you start off and you get the lot of the legend of Candyman in the first movie. And then only 45 minutes in, do you see the Candyman? In this movie, you see him right off. You get the sense of his, the whole atmosphere he's trying to portray. Mm-hmm. You, he's, um, he's a big figure through the entire movie. I also like, you know, the main character of the movie, the the guy that gets stung by the bee and becomes a monster basically by the end of the movie. Yeah. He becomes a, the bad guy. Yeah. Candyman has a weird little element of body horror in it. His yeah. body, his arm slowly begins to deform and, and more from, and from the bee sting travels up his arm and into his face. Yeah. Toward the end of the movie, it's like over half of his, just right. Like half of his body yeah. is infected by the bee sting infected by the candy man, I suppose. Um, yes, this movie is, um, one of the core underlying elements is about, uh, police brutality of black men. Um, which, uh, was a hot issue when the movie was made and people will say, well, you know, it's a hot issue then. Well, I mean, it's, it's been a hot issue for black people for her for, yeah, since, a guy since named, the induction of police. <laughs> a guy named Sherman is the candy man in, in this movie. Yes. He starts off being a, a very innocent figure in this whole thing. Yes. Yes. We, what we're introduced to in this film is that, um, Candyman isn't it. He's the whole hive is I think is the line yeah. given by him. And Candyman is multiple figures who all have uh, this same background that they were um, black men who were killed in painful, torturous ways uh, by the police or by, or by white men. Yeah. Um, and, and that is an element that I, I think is a, is a really strong one to tackle. And the movie does a really nice job with this. They link um, who is what well, we, we in the film, we see three different candy men. Yeah. Um, and one of them is a gentleman from the 70s who had hook for a hand, who gave out kids, who gave out candy to kids, pardon me. And uh, he was eventually um, uh, beaten by police to death uh, when there was a, a white girl who bit into a candy that has a razor blade. Yeah. And they ended up blaming him. And it turns out he wasn't at fault at all, but he was still dead. So, uh, and he is the figure who becomes the candy man um, for one of our characters and ended up becoming the candy man for most of this film. Because he's the one that our um, our protagonist portrays in his artwork. Yeah, and so he's the one that the characters see and are haunted by, and it's it's a different uh, uh, take on the character, even though the the look is the same. In his flashback, it's a prosthetic hook is what he has. He simply lost his hand. Uh, now, when he comes back as the Candyman, he has the more traditional rusty hook. Yeah, um, and his face is severely deformed from the beating that he took that cost him his life, but he does still have a coat. Yeah. Which is almost sort of canon for the Candyman. The 70s style coat. Yeah, he has a 70s style. Yeah, 70s styles, unlike what you would see out of um, from the original film, Tony Todd's version of the character. And I, I mean, I, I do like his look. I, I really do, especially during the um, the bathroom sequence. Yeah. Which would probably be the um, most salacious sequence in the film, I would say. Like, that's a like, there is a sequence where we have Candyman's MO, we have non believers. Who invoke his name? Yep. 
and the non-believer, and they all, and we even get a believer. She says it twice, and she takes off. <laughs> yeah, does not say it the rest of the time. She saved her life. We have a black girl that comes in. She wants nothing to do with it. Puts on her headphones and her music, and so the other girls say it into the mirror five times, and they meet their brutal end to the Candyman. Yeah, right um, then and there too. He wastes no time in wasting them. Yeah, yeah, because I mean that's the one thing we know about the Candyman. He has a flair for the dramatic. Because he wants to build the legend. He wants to build the story. And that's a great way to 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 do it. I mean, teenagers killed, you know, in the bathroom, mysterious circumstances. Well, no mysterious circumstances. That black girl's gonna go to jail the rest of her life. Yeah. Because there's no other there's no, no other, other option. person in there and she gets out alive. Yeah, exactly. And we sort of talk about we saw this a little bit earlier in the film when they talk about everything that happened with Helen. They Early in the movie, a matter of fact, I think the movie's second scene, they recap a character telling us about the events of the first movie, and it has logical explanations that Helen killed all of these people. When you and I both know those things in the first movie wouldn't add up that way at all. Yeah. You and I play a fun game a lot where we sort of will watch a movie and it's murder and think about how podcast hosts, true crime hosts would have covered the incidents in that film. Right. And like, uh, this is a movie, I think like, if you take the the first movie's events at face value, I think that would have been something for podcast hosts to tear apart for years, because everything about the murders are so salacious and strange, right? Right, absolutely. Yeah, and then, you know, at, at the very end, you know, she's this woman who has never done a violent thing in her life continues to escape, you know, and evade police and kill people when she's bound. So it would certainly uh, raise a lot of sus- uh, suspicion, but despite the suspicion raised, police need logical answers. And that's why, you know, in that situation, that black girl's in a lot of trouble and why they need um, this character, the protagonist here, the Candyman, why the cops need him to be that someone to, to blame these murders on and depend them on. They always need to blame somebody to blame. Exactly. They always do. So I, I think one of the things that I, I do love about this movie is the furthering of his lore, the reflection element. The very first kill that he does, we only see the Candyman in the reflection. We don't see him in the real world. We only see him via reflections of the mirror. And it's a nice change. It's it's something that I think makes a lot of sense since the mirror is so involved in his yeah absolutely yeah in his origin and in in his in his lore. And it leads for some really great shots and fantastic cinematography in this movie. I love that whole opening kill where he kills them, you know, and you see him like in the doorway. Like the guy thinks he's free and clear and he gets to the glass door and sees that reflection. Candyman grabs him because that's all he needed just to appear in that reflection. That's really neat stuff. I, you know, we, we want a remake to give us the things that we expect from a movie, but also to mix it up just enough, right? Yeah. Yeah, to give us that extra little element of, of why we're here, why we're watching this again. And I, I think that really, really did did help. You get the art exhibit kills. Yes, yes. And all, all the all the, the kills in the movie are grisly. And also the way it's done is I think is is particularly unnerving because her throat is slit. And his reaction is, is this real? What's going on? What is this? This yeah. is a gag? Because <laughs> If something like that happened in real life, you wouldn't immediately go into fight or flight, right? You yeah, would just absolutely. It be was like, a, a real reaction. Well, what happened? No, this is this is a joke. Yeah, this is a joke. She's not dead. Um, and it, it takes him a solid five to ten seconds before he realizes that his life is in danger and he's got to get the hell out of there. And it's it's um, we were lucky to have good screenplays for both of these movies. 
<laughs> yeah, not we really to, were. Another element of it, you know, we have is the art. The art in the movie is very gritty. Yes, yes, yes. Um, we have an artist here, and one of his, um, he well, he basically sort of makes art that is around the black experience, especially around um, police brutality and things like that. I think his signature piece is like a black man's fist going towards uh, a noose around his neck, right? Yeah, yeah. And it pulls and, at it. it yeah, pulls it pulls at it. it. Yeah, and, and and that's like the image that, as an artist, he can't top that one. But and, you start the movie off with that. That type of art. It's yeah. very clear. It's very understandable. And then as the movie progresses and as he progresses, the art becomes a lot more grittier. It There's a lot more rough strokes to the artwork. Yeah. And I like that. I like that progression because as he's progressing, as he's that bee sting progresses up his arm, his art also progresses. Yeah. The, like the madness comes out in that artwork. Yeah. And I, mean, I love that. Like when... Um, he, his art critic is killed and he storms off from a dinner and his girlfriend comes home and it's like, I've got to see what's in the studio. And she discovers all those paintings and they, as she goes down, as she walks down the line, they become more and more. Yeah, because she's been there with his art the, the entire yeah. time. She <clears throat> sees that. She sees that progression. Yeah. And, 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 and she's utterly horrified. It, it's a great place for two characters to be because she has just become aware of his descent. And he has just become aware of what's really going on. Yeah. And they are two different spots. And she goes like, he, he, you know, <laughs> from his logical perspective, it's perfectly fine for him to come in there and go like, oh, my God, it's a candy man. It's real. I, I, I screwed up. I, I summoned him. I, I screwed up. And she's immediately like, oh, my God, he's lost his mind. Yeah. And she goes to the mirror and she says, look, he's not real. Look, candy man. Can't and like midway through the second one, he does what I think any of us would do in that situation if we were aware of wh what the candy man really is. He grabs a piece of uh, a paint can and he throws it right in the mirror and shatters it. Yeah, that's of what he's, uh, yeah. yeah, but that's to what her, I would do. <laughs> that looks fucking insane. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, it really, she immediately takes off. He tried to kill me, like, no, he tried to save you. Yeah, you just would l read it as him trying to kill you because he threw a paint can near your head, and it it is such a his descent is really well done. Uh, we were we were lucky to have. Um, uh, let's see here. We were lucky to have uh, Yahweh uh, Abdul Mateen. Uh, Yaha uh, Abdul Mateen. Pardon me. I worked on the pronunciation of that and I still screwed it up. That uh, it happens. <laughs> I knew I was because I, I I looked at it the other day and uh, I loved his work in Ambulance. He's a fantastic actor. He does a great job here. Um, he was initially misreported as playing the Candyman. Uh, which, I mean, spoiler, does end up occurring. But that is not uh, who he is in the movie to start with. So um, he does a great job with this descent into madness and when everything comes down on him. Um, I do have some critiques of the film, though. Okay. So we are given a character who is Exposition Man. And there's nothing wrong with having a character who's Exposition Man. But my issue with him is he comes in, he introduces us to the old Candyman, to the Candyman legends, as well as our protagonist. And in the end of the film, he is basically spurring the plot along, right? Yeah. He literally turns our character into the Candyman. Like he cuts his arm off, cuts his hand off, throws the hook on him and puts a signature coat on him. Um, he literally throws us into the finale. Yeah. <laughs> Even though the movie... For a movie that's well-crafted, that's an incredibly clunky way for us to get to a finale. A finale that is well done. It's distracting. Yeah, that that yeah, it almost draws it like a sore thumb. It just sticks out. I can't right remember there. the name of that character. Yeah, I know. I should have wrote down character names, but I did not. Um, 
but he um I, I mean it, it it just it sticks out like a sore thumb. I mean once again, all none of this is on the actors. It, no. This is yeah, this is just a, a strange story decision. I think the other one is that um um Yaha's character is the baby that was kidnapped in the first film. Yes. That is not a hundred percent necessary. No. I, I understand what they're trying to do and tie everything back into the first movie. Um and, and normally I, I like when these elements of lore are there, but this movie was already so strong it didn't need any of those elements to tie it into that film at all. Yeah, we didn't need that twist. Literally the only thing it needed to tie into the first movie would have been what they did at the end of the film, which is after the lead cop is killed. And the Candyman turns, it's Tony Todd's face. Tell my story. And that's it. That's that's all you need to tie it into that movie. You don't don't need anything else to say like, oh, he was the child the Candyman took and cared for for a month. Don't forget, Helen's in jail for over a month. So <laughs> the Candyman was burping and feeding and getting up and making... <laughs> I mean, don't, I mean, let, lay. Let, let's not, let's pay attention to what the plot of this movie has. He was I, a good babysitter. Yeah. I think even Roger Ebert actually pointed this out in his review. If you think about the absurdity of that, of the candy man walking around with the baby and who, who's a good baby. But you do get that one <laughs> scene of him feeding him honey. Yes, yes, yes. You do, you do get that. You do get that. So the, the candy man wasn't going to let anything happen to the child. He needed, he needed that for his legend. So it's just a, a fun element to think about, but it's um it it doesn't help uh, with that movie which which is a real shame because as I said I think both these movies are like nines out of tens for me I I do prefer the original film I don't I prefer the new one and that's fine there's nothing wrong with that um but both are incredibly well made stories that go different directions um I think it's a it's a blessing that we had Jordan Peele come along and decide yes. to remake this and to pick up this franchise where I left off. Cause let me tell you, um, I, I mentioned this earlier with, with Tony Todd loving the character after Freddie versus Jason, they fast tracked, uh, Candyman versus the leprechaun. Oh, and man. they wrote a script. They were starting to get stuff together. And Tony Todd was like, I will never, ever, <laughs> ever appear in that. Do you understand me ever? And you can't do Candyman without Tony Todd. So it was dead. So we were lucky for <laughs> blessed that Tony Todd blocked Thank that God. from happening. And before this, I think about uh, seven or eight years earlier, Clive Barker came back to the to producing and uh, wanted to pick up this again. It didn't go anywhere, and, and like we were lucky to get uh, Jordan Peele to give us his take. Which, as I said, I have a few qualms with, but overall, I enjoy the hell out of both of these movies. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed the reboot. Yeah. Even though it's a soft reboot, it's still um, it's a sequel. Yeah, it's more of a sequel than we're calling a soft reboot. reboot, so it fits in with the theme of the show. But yeah, yeah it's a, I mean, let's not mix words. It's a sequel because I mean, we're literally getting characters from the first movie. His when his mom shows up, by the way, she looked fantastic. I know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, did they recast? I was like, oh my god, that's her. She didn't age a day in over twenty years. Virginia Madsen looks like she's been to World War Two. Like, <laughs> I mean, she looks she looks great. It's um. This, this both movies are just so strong. Yeah, and they are. I, I think the social statement uh, from both films are for what you could get away with in, in the '90s for the original film, right? Right. Yeah, I mean that that's what that's what you you were allowed to sort of to do, and I think making a movie about police violence and, and police brutality because I think one of the more ridiculous things I hear from people is yeah I'm gonna talk political for a second is that oh it's a new issue like no it's it's not a it's not a new issue at all, you know, like this is 
a, a plague of violence against black men for as long as there has been America. And yeah, yeah I mean, basically, I mean, that that's what the Candyman legend proves going back to 1890. Yeah. And with Jordan Peele being a part of the project, um, he's, he is with get out and everything. He does have a very, um, what white people would consider, uh, hateful. So yeah, he's, he's got a different tone to his movies. Um, as a white person, I happen to like his movies. I think that it makes white people uncomfortable to t- talk talk about some of the things that we've done to the uh, b- to black culture throughout the years, and uh, you know, it just makes it makes us uncomfortable. But I like that uncomfortableness. Yeah, yeah. Even the first film, like I said, I, I talk about this. The scariest place for a white person to be is Cabrini Green yeah, in nineteen ninety two. Absolutely. You know, um, any place where you would uh, like a, a gang. This is the era of the super predator. You know, you, you remember that? Yeah. Um, any of our viewers out there? Basically, the it was the thought that um, years of this was political uh, theory. People talked about the politicians wrote laws based on this idea that. Uh, black men had been without fathers for so long that they had bred this entire generation of super criminals. Yeah. And they were dangerous and they were going to destroy our country. You lock your doors. Yeah. They're going to yeah. rape you. Yeah, exactly. And this is like, you know. Um, so wrong. Yeah, yeah. And I, like, I mean, a lot of our nation's harshest laws were written in this period. Uh, our president, Joe Biden, was a part of, of that uh, call to to make these incredibly harsh laws. Three strikes is a good example. Um but it, it, those elements are, are all over, like I said, the, the first movie, the fear of of the black man, the fear of black culture, you know, for white people. Yeah. You know, I think that, that I mean, that that's what's, what's, what's really terrifying. Like there's a moment when Helen and her friend are sitting in the car and they're talking about other people in their class and they know they wouldn't go to Cabrini Green. They wouldn't have the stones to even drive where they're at, much less think about going inside. Right. Um. And I, and I think that's an interesting element um, because, like I said, that that's you know that that's real fear to be to be honest, and that's something that movie taps into. And this movie is the uh, pardon me the the twenty one verse is also real fear, but very different. Uh, you're talking about uh, a black man's fear of the police. Yeah, that's, you know that's what they have to deal with. Early on, there's a line. I saw the true face of fear when he when the first Candyman realizes that the cops are coming. And they've been looking for him and there's a kid screaming and he's not going to make it out of there, you know, but that's the realistic part of, of these two films, you know, all good horror comes from place, realistic places. Yeah. And these two movies come from it with the same character in different perspectives. And they both do a fantastic job. I, I, I could not be more pleased. Um, critics were kind to both films. Uh, as I mentioned this, I dare to compare. Uh, Candyman, the original, had 78% of Rotten Tomatoes, and the remake has 84%. And they're both fairly similar in length. Only 10 minutes separate these movies. Can you guess which one's longer? Uh, The original. Yes, the original. 101 to 91. Oh, okay. Yeah, this, none of these movies are very, very long, despite how dense both of them are, actually. Yeah, very yeah, dense. Yeah, there's quite a bit very that happens. I was thinking about slasher films where almost nothing happens in like 100 minutes, and so much goes down in these two movies in the runtime of one Stranger Things finale. Well, before we close, I wanted to uh, talk about uh, some reviews that I, some user reviews, people just like us, you know, normal, average, everyday, non-professional critics. Sure. Um, 
here's one review. I, I What I did was I picked one star reviews because I think those are more interesting sometimes. You know, you get somebody just thinking about the movie or did get the movie and you're like, oh my gosh, really? But anyways, here's a one star review for the 92 Candyman. Smuh. I really wanted to see this movie, but it sucked. I mean, Candyman has always been a one-man band. Now y'all done made him a bum with, with co-workers. Candyman <laughs> is supposed to be an I- intimidating figure. Hell, everyone wasn't scared to say his name because dude looked like the cart collector at Walmart. They just really dropped the ball on this one. <laughs> <laughs> now you got co-workers. Like he's like, Candyman are clocking in for their shifts. Like yeah. they're taking their hook hand, clicking it on the cart, shoving it. All right, man, you got to head in there. I, I, I got something I got to do later. Uh, I got to put some razor blades in these candies. Like I'm wrangling my bees. Can somebody else take this one? You gotta they love gave me it. a fun image there. By the way, what did that review start with? Shmuh? You know, that, that, you, know, you don't pronounce that shmuh. What do you? That's shaking my head. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize that. Yeah. I'm not good with that kind of That's stuff. That's okay. I, no one knows this, but my wife is a thousand years old. <laughs> Sorry. I, I didn't mention that when we started this podcast. <laughs> okay. So now I have uh, a review from uh, the 2021 Candyman. BLM propaganda that would make Goebbels fl- blush. Watch Ooh. the original and avoid this abortion of a remake. Ooh. You really yeah, did guy. not like that movie. Yeah, that's a that's a fragile white man right there. <laughs> and he and he added Goebbels to it. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> he knew him offhand. <laughs> I wonder what that I, I, means. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not, not going to put two things together. <laughs> That motherfucker's a racist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and but that was that was the theme as I was looking at all these reviews. Imagine, yeah. There, especially with the the remake. Uh, oh my gosh, oh, a yeah, lot yeah. of racist yeah. comments. A lot of like, why is this a, a white hating propaganda and stuff like that? It's just like, uh, really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I do like that you throw any criticism of police to people like throw it in with white hating, like I criticize the police. I didn't. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that that you know you criticize an organization. Um, no, uh, those are those are two good examples, and I, I those you you see that a lot around any movie that might address anything politically that you'll see people on the other side just slander the film, uh, just because it dares bring up a, a political uncomfortable. Topic. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and listen, white people don't like to be uncomfortable, like I said. I mean, I would love to have a movie, a horror movie that comes out and has like a conservative perspective on things and tries to challenge like those ideas. Like that's what I wanted from something like Death Wish and Gun Control. Yeah. But instead, like, and we'll, we'll we'll cover that one day later on. You don't like both those movies, so that'll be tough. But like, you know, that movie's like ultimately a toothless kind of movie because it's corporate. It's got to be sold. And with Jordan Peele, like he'd be like, nah, man, I'm going to make a movie about what I want to make a movie about because I have power. Yeah. And that's the real joy of Jordan Peele doing it. We get a a movie about these issues dealt with maturely and it doesn't really have to pull any punches. Yeah. And it does, obviously, because it, it pissed off some racists. So that's pretty solid. Hell yeah. Hey, listen, you, I mean, I'm sure as a filmmaker, you'll take that if you piss off some racists. Well, user reviews for this, uh, the 92 Candyman was 3.2 stars. That's what it averaged. And then the 2021 version was 2.7 stars. So Oof. people really did not yeah. like the the remake. Yeah, no, that's that. But that's that, men, that mentality. You see that a lot. Like if uh, like the negative reviews for like something as harmless as like Captain Marvel. 
Yeah. You know, just because Brie Larson is is fairly liberal. I mean, she's not even out there like, you know, she's not even out. Break your chains, brothers. <laughs> <laughs> They're the only things that keep us locked, you know. <laughs> yeah, but she's not like that or anything. I mean, she's just, you know, she's just a feminist and she has some liberal ideas, but she doesn't really even go that deep into them, to be perfectly honest. Um, but, you know that film was still bombarded with negative, like one star reviews just to lower that rating. Yeah. Cause it's how people, people are. And and I put a lot of stock in, into user reviews because I think it's how people feel about a movie with an asterisk next to it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I put that asterisk for movies like this one, Ghostbusters 2016 or 2015 with the Kristen Wiig and right. um, a, a fairly mediocre film with atrocious reviews because people were upset that they would dare replace Bill Murray with Kristen Wiig. Um, you know, how dare you destroy Ghostbusters? And it's like, I mean, you've seen Ghostbusters too? Come on. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's not act like this franchise was was gold. But but going back to, to to any of these kind of movies like that, with any sort of political statement, you can see them bashed uh, in any way, shape, or form. Um, I, I wish movies with a more conservative slant would be better made. Right. <laughs> I guess it, it is is the the key to it. Um because I see this complaint a lot. I was like, well, if a movie did this for, you know, on a Republican angle, you'd feel the same way by it. I was like, show me the movie. You know, show me the movie. <laughs> you know, and I I, I feel like I, I rarely if ever see that. And I mean, even in guys who are conservative like Clint Eastwood, he doesn't really champion a lot of those causes. Yeah. So that was Candyman. That is. That is um You both Kind of like the movie. Well, I kind of like the first one. I love the the remake. I love both films. I love both films. I was very pleased by this. I had not seen the second movie until I did this. Um, you know, it just came out in that COVID time where I wasn't going to theaters. Yeah. And um, I, I love the film, so I wasn't going to pirate it or steal it or anything like that. I, I wanted to pay money for it. And eventually I just waited till it was free on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> the American way. All right. <laughs> But uh, having watched it for the first time, I'm glad I waited and watched it and had a chance to do it like this and, and come in here and talk about it the next day. Yeah. It really was fantastic. Well, guys, we have a new Gmail account that we have created for you guys to kind of email us direct and, you know, you can get to know us. You can talk to us. Mm-hmm. Um, you can recommend movies. And that Gmail account is? That's Gritty Reboot Cast, uh, C-A-S-T, just cast. And that's at gmail.com. Um, and you can send all those there. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at illusionist 13. Uh, that's my personal handle. You can ask me any questions there, or, uh, you can take time and pity me for my substandard memes. <laughs> um, uh, you can also, um, take a look at, uh, the kitchen ace on Twitch as well. Um, I Twitch and, uh, I play horror games every now and then. And occasionally I play Donkey Kong with my daughter yeah. there as well. So, uh, like I said, uh, we're in all sorts of places. If you want to reach out to us, we'll take any question. And, um, you know, um, I'll even hook up my phone. We'll take phone calls during the next show if anybody would ever want to. Uh, so, yeah, guys, uh, reach out to us. Uh, hit us up. And uh, we will let you know what we're going to talk about next week. All right. We'll follow our podcast and we'll talk to you next week. All right, guys. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.